I was uh, considerably under the weather last week, and and uh, one of the worst I've had, I think. And so, uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, I knew Jim had leftover material from the previous week, so I thought if I called him at the last minute, he'd be able to <coughs> bail me out, and he did, and I appreciate that. Uh, so it's actually been uh, it's been three weeks since we were together because the week before that he also filled in for me since I'd been on the road and celebrating Christmas and everything. So the last time we were together was a couple days before Christmas, and we were <coughs> doing the end of Romans chapter five. We actually kind of did verses fifteen through verse twenty one. And so today we're going to pick it up with chapter 6 and, Lord willing, look at the first four verses or so of chapter 6. So, but before we do, it's really important because in chapter 6, Paul is just going on from things he was talking about in chapter 5. So it is important that we go back, as we usually do, and kind of review and see what were the kind of things now you're going to really have to put on your thinking caps here because it's been a long time since we were together uh, on this chapter. So, but go back and look at uh, verses 15 through 21 of chapter 6 and try to remember some of the things that we talked about uh, clear back last year <laughs> when we were in chapter 5. We talked about the Okay. 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 So that's one of the things that's been going on through chapter five is this idea of the abundance of grace, which he's going to have to deal with now when he gets into chapter six. But this idea of just this super abundance of Christ's grace, which is more than adequate to cover uh, all the sin that it has to deal with. What else? <clears throat> Talk about the uh, fact that Adam was the type of Christ, but the comparison, uh, she was saying the comparison and the grace was so much more them. I just gave you a big fat hint. 
Okay, it's just one. That's the point. Uh, and that's what he stresses there. Uh, in verse beginning in verse 18, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. So the idea is, while there are these differences between Adam and Christ that are very profound and very significant, the, the similarity is in the fact that through one man sin entered into the world and that through one man and through one act of righteousness uh, we have justification and life to all men. And, and the significance of that, of course, is that what that means to us is, is that there are not... And one, one of the significances of it is there are not many ways in which we are justified. There is only one way we are justified and that's through Christ's one act. So it's not through my act of righteousness. It's not through all the good deeds that I do that make me justified in God's eyes. But rather, it's through this one act of righteousness in Christ. So just as I look back at Adam and I say, well, Adam, you got me in this mess. And you alone got me in this mess. You introduced me into this sinful condition. Now I look back at Christ and I say, Christ is the one and the only one who's got me out of this mess and the one through whom I have life. And, but then he starts talking about this issue uh, about the law because when he says that through one man's obedience there results a justification of life to all men, when he says that and with everything else he said uh, about Salvation being by grace and being through faith in Christ and that sort of thing. In the previous chapters, of course, the question comes up, what's the purpose of the law? Because remember, he's writing to a church in which there are a number of Jews and the whole, this whole question of the, the relationship of Judaism to this new religion of Christianity uh, is very pronounced in the church. And so this question comes up, well, where does the law fit into this? And so he says in verse 20, the law came in so that transgression would increase. What did he mean by that? Yes. They're still doing it, but they just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And there is that sinful nature within them that they they kind of sit on, and and they're not really aware of how sinful they are. And because they're not aware of how sinful they are, they don't know they need a savior. They don't know they need redemption. Right? Did you any of you have that experience before you were saved? You thought you were pretty good, right? And then at some point you come to realize something happens and you realize I'm not pretty good. I'm really pretty much of a skunk, okay? Well, that's what the law does. The law shows you to be the skunk that you are, right? Okay? So, God gave the law so that sin would increase. So, when He gave the law, what that actually did, and we'll see this as we go on through chapter 6 and chapter 7, we'll see that what the law does is it not only shows us our sin, but it actually incites that sin nature in us. So that when the law says, you shall not drive over 55 mile an hour, I say, oh yeah? 
I'll show you, right? Okay? Well, that's what the law does. When my, when my parents, yeah, when my parents said, you know, don't stick the bobby pin in the electrical outlet, you know, I just go, well, who are you to tell me? You know, and it incites that sin nature. That's what the law does, right? And so God gave the law for that very purpose in order to incite in us that sin nature in order that we would see what sinners we are. Okay, so that's what he's saying there in verse 20. The law came in so that transgression would increase. And so you go, well, this is this is terrible. God's given the law and it's caused me to sin more, which makes my predicament greater, right? Well, no. Because where there was this increase of sin, he says, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What he's saying there is simply this, that that God, when He gave the law, in order to increase my sin, had already provided, in grace, had provided a superabundant provision, something that would far exceed any sin that I would commit. So there was no real peril in God giving the law and my sin increasing because there was an abundant grace that would cover all of that sin regardless. Okay, So God has provided this abundant grace in Christ so that no matter how great my sin is, the grace is greater. Okay, And so he says in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, then that brings up some issues that he begins to deal with now in chapter 6. And as we begin to read in chapter 6, and we'll just try to look at the first uh, verses of chapter 6 today, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, Paul is beginning to make kind of a shift here in chapter 6. It's not a permanent shift, but there's a bit of a shift here in his emphasis in which he's, he's moving now from the question of how we were saved to what does life look like for the believer. But the reason he's doing that is because of this question that he proposes here in verse 1. Okay. So up till this point, we've been talking all the way through chapter 4 and in chapter 5, we've been talking about the idea of justification or justification by faith, right? What we've been dealing with is the problem that we had that we were sinners and we were under God's wrath and we were facing the penalty of sin. Now when we get into chapter... And, and, and the answer to being freed from the penalty of sin 
was Christ's death and resurrection, right? Well, now we're going to go on and we're going to, instead of dealing with the issue of being free from the penalty of sin, in chapter 6, because of the question that comes up in verse 1 and a related question that comes up in verse 15, he's going to deal not with the issue of us being freed from the penalty of sin, but rather us being freed from the power of sin. Okay? Those are two different things. And Paul really deals with them uh, in different ways. And so that's what we're going to see. Now, so in chapter 6, what he's really talking about throughout chapter 6 is the question of what is the believer's relationship to sin. Okay? So, once I got saved, once I trusted Christ and and experienced conversion, what now should I expect would be my relationship to sin? Because he has just said at the end of chapter 5 that the law came in so that sin would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so Paul proposes this question, and it's kind of, again, that kind of dialogue thing a little bit that we've had earlier in Romans. <laughs> but Paul brings up this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And, uh, of course, here, in this context, now he uses the... He uses the uh, first person plural here. So he's clearly talking about believers. So writing to the Roman believers and including himself with them, he's saying, you know, what is, what's the conclusion of what I have just said about the law coming in and sin increasing and grace abounding all the more? Does that mean that we can continue or in fact even should continue in sin so that grace might increase? Now the question comes up, who does Paul have in mind when he brings up this question? You know, in, in, uh, in the various kind of uh, uh, dialogues that he established earlier, in, uh, that he uh, used earlier in Romans, uh, whenever he would set up one of these kind of imaginary dialogues, we would always stop and ask ourselves, well, who's he talking to? Who is it that's proposing these questions or these responses to him? that he's answering. <laughs> and so, the question that we face right off the bat when we read verse 1 is who does Paul have in mind? Well, actually, there's a couple possibilities and it's really not clear for certain. I have some, I have, uh, some personal opinion about which one I think he's addressing. But he could be addressing uh, either one of two ways of looking at things or ways of thinking of things. And if you kind of think about a road, I remember when I, back in 1980, Christmas of 1980, we were uh, going to uh, Iowa at Christmas time, and it was the Christmas that I swore afterwards that I would never go to Iowa in the Christmas, uh, winter again. Obviously, I haven't kept that vow. I just did it again just the, the other day. But, but uh, we were traveling through, we left Lawrence, Kansas on Christmas Eve morning, and we were headed north to Iowa. And it had started to uh, do the, you know, the freezing rain, freezing ice, you know, thing. And the roads were just a mess. And we got up into northern Kansas on a two-lane highway in northern Kansas. 
And I came down this hill uh, in this rural area of Kansas, and I come down this hill, and, I, and I'm driving a van, and we had three kids at the time. Benjamin was about nine months old. And, and I felt that van start sliding over to the right. Of course, fortunately, in that part of uh, Kansas and Nebraska, Southern Nebraska, you know, they build what they call bar ditches. <laughs> you know, they're designed for people to go into, you know, not like they have here in Oklahoma where you, you never want to go in a ditch. But, but up there, they expect you to go in the ditch, you know. <laughs> so sure enough, I'm headed for the ditch. And so, of course, what do you do when you're headed for the ditch? You overcorrect, right? Okay. So what did I do? I ended up in the other ditch, right? Okay. So I had two ditches and I kind of took my pick and ended up in the other one. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> what Paul's dealing with here are kind of the two ditches you can end up with, end up in. Okay. You don't want to end up in either one of them. But the first one we can call antinomianism. Uh, excuse my writing here. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it's spelled right. You just can't tell it. There's a difference between bad spelling and bad writing, but you can't tell the difference. <laughs> Antinomianism. What does it mean? Okay. Okay. The word anti against. Uh, nomian meaning or referring to the law against the law. Okay, and the antinomians <coughs> were excuse me people who just wanted to have nothing to do with the law. They just regarded the law as irrelevant. They could live however they wanted to live. Okay, and so it's possible that Paul here is thinking of the antinomians. He's thinking of the people who have just total disregard for the law and are just saying, well. Christ died for our sins. Our sins are paid for. And so I don't need to worry about obeying the law or whatever. Whatever I do, I just do whatever I want because if I do anything wrong, it's covered by grace, right? So I can just continue in sin that grace might increase, okay? Well, you use the term the law, but is that really... Doesn't that really expand into any area, not just the law? Yes, not just the Mosaic law. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Any law. So, yeah. Someone who believes that might read something in the New Testament and says, well, it says don't do that, but that doesn't really apply to me. Yeah, and actually when we think about it, if you think about it practically speaking, you know, think, well, who would think such a thing? Well, the fact is probably we all have. You know, have you ever, have you ever been... Uh, uh, in, in just dealing with issues of sin in your life, just at times, just kind of thrown up your hands and said, "Well, it doesn't matter because I'll be forgiven anyway." You ever done that? You know, maybe you know some of us we have some area of sin which maybe you got maybe you have a problem with temper, you know, and so you really struggle with you know, and then eventually you just kind of get to a point where you, well, you know, I'm just Irish and that's just the way we are, you know, and so God will forgive me for it, you know. Or, uh, you know, or, or just, you know, there could be any number of areas in our lives where we just kind of give up struggling with it or we don't really want to get victory over it. <coughs> Excuse me. So we just say, well, it's okay because I'll be forgiven anyway. Yeah. That's antinomianism, okay? So as Jim points out, yeah, it has to do with a lot more than just the Mosaic Law. <coughs> well, what would be the opposite, the other ditch from antinomianism? 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> and the word for that would be? <coughs> Pardon? Legalism. Yeah. Legalism. And if the antinomian's issue is he has no fear of disobeying the law, he has no fear of sin, the legalist has just the opposite problem. He's just afraid of anything that might give him permission to sin. Okay? <coughs> so, the legalist... Uh, the, well, yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they do point to others. Uh, what's interesting here... <coughs> excuse me. My throat's starting to tickle me a lot here. Uh, what's interesting here is that it seems like Paul could be addressing either one of these. I tend to think he's probably addressing the legalist because that, I think, tends to be the problem he's encountering in Rome. But either way, the answer that he gives really addresses both of these problems. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, you know, I have some here. I'm trying to avoid sticking one in my mouth for President Mabry's talk for me. So, <laughs> but thank you for offering. But uh, if I get desperate, I'll I'll put one in. Well, Rick, you know, you, you talk about these two camps, and in, in some ways, I see that. But in on the other hand, <laughs> even if someone doesn't fall into one of those two camps, it would be easy to come to some wrong conclusions about this. Yeah. And so, in that way, I think he's probably addressing everyone. Well, oh yeah, yeah, for sure, and and that'll become clear as we go on. Yeah, good point, Jim. Uh, I remember. Uh, uh, talking about this idea of the legalist or the person who's afraid of grace for fear that, that there'll be no restraint. Uh, many years ago, uh, back in the early year, this is uh, possibly before we even had children, my wife and I lived over uh, close to, not too far from where Reeves Park is located. And of course, Norman always has this big you know, July 4th uh, celebration there. Uh, Norman Day celebration, and this is back, I don't know, 35 or more years ago. <clears throat> but uh, but I remember one time my wife and I went over there earlier in the day, uh, not just for the fireworks, but kind of earlier in the day because we wanted to get a chance to see if we could find some people to witness to. So we went over and we're just kind of walking around and talking to people and sharing the gospel with people. And, and we encountered uh, a group of, of young people about our age, uh, college age or so at the time. And, uh, and there were probably three or four of them. And <coughs> it turns out that this particular group of young people were from a denomination that, uh, that taught, uh, that put a lot of emphasis on works and taught that you could lose your salvation and and uh, that you needed to be baptized to be saved and that sort of thing. And so we were sharing the gospel with them. And somehow in the context of, of sharing with them, the subject of the security of the believer came up. And it became clear that my wife and I both believed that once a person had been truly saved, that they were secure in Christ and they never had to worry about losing their salvation. And this really appalled uh, these young people, these other young people that we were uh, sharing with, and they just thought this was a horrible doctrine. And, and, and I've shared this story before, so those of you who heard it before, just bear with me. But 
one of the guys or one of the fellows uh, that we were talking with uh, just raised this objection. He says, well, if I believe that, if I believe that once I was saved, I could just go out and do anything I want to do, then I just go out and do anything I want to do. <coughs> and, uh, and I did there, I like to think I did there what Paul does here in Romans chapter 6. I may be thinking too highly of myself. <laughs> but what's interesting to me is when this question is proposed in Paul's dialogue here, <coughs> that he does not really answer the question, or he doesn't really uh, argue the question in response to what they've done with chapter 5. In other words... The question as it's asked in six chapter six in chapter six verse one actually distorts what Paul said in chapter five. Because Paul did not say that greater sin causes grace to be greater. That's not what he said. What Paul said was, however great your sin, grace is greater. That's what Paul said. But it's been distorted now here in chapter six verse one by either the antinomian or the legalist to say, well, the more you sin, the more grace increases. Okay? That's not what Paul said. So they've really distorted what they're really distorting what Paul said. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't go back and argue that. He doesn't point out to them that, well, you're not you know, that's not what I said. That's not what he does. But rather his answer to their question kind of elevates the discussion to a new, whole new level. So, in the illustration I was giving you, what I said to this, you know, what I could have done is I could have said, well, listen, let's go look at a bunch of verses. And let me show you a bunch of verses that prove eternal security. <clears throat> I didn't do that. I just simply said to the person, I just simply said, well, you know what your answer tells me? Your answer tells me you're probably not saved. Because if you really want to go out and do all of that stuff, then that's an indication you've not been converted. I don't want to do that stuff. I bet you like that answer. Actually, you know, it kind of shut the conversation down. It shut, you know, but that's kind of what Paul does here. Instead of going back and arguing a bunch of issues about, about uh, you know, well, that's not really what I said, and here's what I said... Instead of doing that, he elevates it to another whole level and he says, may it never be. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So instead of going back and arguing all about what he actually said in chapter 5, he just simply says, this is totally irrational, folks. Now, I do want to point out when Paul says uh, in verse 2, May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul is not saying that for the believer, sin is impossible. He's not saying here that sin is a logical, or excuse me, a practical impossibility for the believer. How do I know that? Because as we go on down through chapter 6, time and time again in chapter 6, he exhorts believers not to sin. 
which of course would be an absurd thing for him to say if it was impossible in the first place, right? So he's not arguing that it's impossible for believers to sin. Now, some people think it is. <coughs> some people think that once you get saved, that's it, and you never sin again. And that is a serious mistake, which leads to one of two problems. It either leads to a disillusionment when you begin to realize, well, I do sin, so I must not be saved. And so you begin to go, well, you know, all these people around me, they say they don't sin anymore because they're saved, but I find that I do sin, so there's something wrong with me. So it results in disillusionment. The other problem is for the people who really convince themselves that they don't sin anymore. And that, of course, is a problem of self-delusion and arrogance. Okay. Paul's very clear that sin is a present problem with the believer and we'll confront that as we go through chapter 6. We'll see that believers do struggle with sin. <clears throat> so it's really pretty much self-delusion to argue and say, well, I just don't do it anymore because I'm safe. So he's not saying that sin is a practical impossibility. What he is saying is that sin is a logical absurdity. Okay? In other words, uh, in other words, yeah, it's possible for a believer to sin, but it just doesn't make any sense. That's his argument. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's just really absurd for somebody who has died to sin to go on just living in sin. Now, remember that what Paul is talking about here, and this becomes very clear as we go through chapter 6, what Paul is talking about here is the idea of being freed from the power of sin. So, for example, uh, in uh, uh, just looking down uh, quickly, uh, in verse 7, he talks about being freed from sin. Uh, in verse 9, he talks about sin or death no longer being a master over him. Uh, and uh, there's a number of verses like that as you go down through chapter 6 where it's very clear that what he's talking about is sin being dominant in our lives or sin being our master or we being slaves to sin. <clears throat> so when he talks about us having died to sin, as some commentators put it, the point is that we have died to sin, not that sin has died to us. Okay? And there's a difference. Okay? I have died to sin in the sense that I am no longer under its authority or under its power. But that does not mean that sin is not still present with me and something I have to cope with. I am under the authority and the power of the American government, right? Uh, and under the city of Norman and Norman's 
city ordinances and laws. I'm, I'm under their authority, okay? I have an obligation and responsibility to them, which is an obligation and responsibility I don't have to you, right? So I still have to deal with you people. You're still a problem in my life. But you're not the same problem the city of Norman is, right? So if I don't cut my lawn, it probably doesn't bug you. If it does bug you, I don't really care, you know, because you have no authority over me. But if I don't cut my lawn and the city of Norman says cut your lawn, then I need to cut my lawn, right? Okay. So sin is something we still have to deal with, but it's not something that has authority or dominion or control in our life. And that's what he means when he says, we have died to sin. Now, what's interesting to me is the way he says this to the Romans. He proposes this question, what, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? And then he says, may it never be. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? What is the assumption he makes regarding the Romans when he says that? Okay, they are believers. What else? Because they are believers, they are dead to sin. Dead to sin. Okay, and then there's something else, and it's not as clear here as it is in the next verse, but there's something else he assumes about them. He assumes they know it. You see that? How can we who are dead, you know, he doesn't go into an argument here yet about showing that we're dead to sin. He just presumes it. And not only does he presume it, but he presumes they know it. For example, in the next verse, he says, or do you not know? See, he's incredulous at the prospect that these Roman believers did not know that they were dead to sin. He assumes that these Roman believers knew that they were dead to sin. Now, this is very interesting to me. And we'll explore this for a little bit here as we go forward about why does Paul assume that these believers in Rome have this knowledge that they are dead to sin? Well, the reason is because apparently all believers in the New Testament knew they were dead to sin. And what's interesting to me is, as, and as I'll demonstrate to you here in a, in a minute, this idea of having died to sin was one of the very first things a believer ever came to know or understand in the New Testament church. In fact, I am convinced that probably most of them knew it before they were saved. That when they were saved, they would be dead to sin. Now, when did the idea of being dead to sin become really influential in your life? For most of us, we may have been saved for many years before we ever began to dawn on us this whole idea of being dead to sin. In fact, I would suggest to you, without wanting to be hypercritical or anything, but I would suggest to you 
that even to this day, most believers pay very little attention or have any clue what Romans 6 is saying. Now, there's a lot of believers who will talk to you all day long about Romans 7 and what they think Romans 7 says. But I, I would suggest that there are very few believers who could really articulate the reality of Romans 6 and even fewer who experience it in their lives. And I'll be honest with you. I don't experience it in my life the way I believe Paul expects us to experience it in our lives. I'm still struggling to, to, to get to a point where I go, not only, yes, Romans 6 is true and I believe it's true, but I'm going to live my life like it's really true. And the truth of Romans 6, all the way through Romans 6, is this idea of being dead to sin. And it was a foundational truth that every young believer in the New Testament church knew. How do I know that? Well, because of what Paul now does. He has just stated outright that we are dead to sin. And then he introduces his argument and to illustrate this idea of being dead to sin, what does he use? Beginning in verse 3. Baptism. baptism. He brings up the subject of baptism. Okay. Now, there tends to be various opinions about exactly what Paul's referring to here when he refers to baptism in chapter 6. And some people would argue that Paul is only using baptism here in the spiritual sense of being in Christ. Okay? Uh, but, but I think it's pretty clear that, he's, that what he's talking about here is water baptism. Okay? Now, don't freak out. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear that he's talking about water baptism here in chapter 6. And, and there are a host of good, solid, evangelical scholars, Baptist scholars, uh, and other good, solid, evangelical scholars who hold this position that Romans 6 is talking about water baptism. Okay? Uh, so you have guys like John Stodd, you've got guys like Douglas Moo, You've got guys, uh, Baptist uh, theologians like Schreiner and Wright. Uh, you have all kinds of guys who clearly see here that he's talking about water baptism. Okay? And one of the reasons is because as you read through the New Testament, uh, when you encounter the idea of baptism, it's safest to assume that it's talking about water baptism unless it specifies another mode. Okay? So, for example, uh, Jesus in Matthew talks about a baptism by fire. Okay? There clearly the mode is fire. In John and in Acts, it talks about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Very clearly there the mode is the Holy Spirit. Okay? But in those places where it, the mode of baptism is not indicated then it's usually safest to assume that it's water baptism. The second thing is, when I'm just reading through Romans, 
And I've encountered nothing of the idea of baptism as a uh, 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 baptism from the spiritual sense. There's been nothing said about baptism in any context up through this point in Romans. And then suddenly he introduces, and I ask myself, how would the Roman believers have read that? How would the Roman church have read that? They're just, they're just marching through Romans and all of a sudden baptism is brought up. What's the first thing they're going to think about? Well, they're going to think about water baptism. And of course, one of the ways we interpret Scripture is by trying to understand how did the early writers uh, uh, understand what was written, right? So, so I think he's talking here about water baptism. But what we need to observe closely here in Paul's argument is that Paul is presenting water baptism not as an explanation of how we died to Christ, but to show that we have died to Christ. Okay? So Paul is not offering water baptism here as the means by which a person dies to Christ, but to illustrate that in fact a man has died, or a woman who we believe has died to sin. Right? So, so Paul is using the word baptism here and the idea of water baptism to signify the conversion experience. Now, there are a couple things we need to understand about baptism in the New Testament era. And one is that baptism in the New Testament era is different than the way it's usually practiced today, even in Baptist churches in that it was invariably immediate. As soon as a person expressed faith and confessed faith in Christ, they went out and they got baptized. They didn't wait a week. They didn't wait two weeks. They didn't wait several months. They didn't go through a whole six-week class on a catechism, on baptism. They just went out and did it. Okay? What's a classic example from the New Testament of that, from the book of Acts? Okay, the jailer is an example. He gets saved. That very night, he gets baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, Philip encounters him on the road. They're riding down the road. They're explaining the gospel as they're driving down the superhighway. And the guy gets saved. And it goes by Lake Thunderbird. And he goes, oh, there's water. What's preventing me from being baptized? And you say, the water's too dirty. You would never want to be baptized in Lake Thunderbird. Uh, actually, I've baptized some people out there. But aside from that... Uh, aside from that, the idea is that in the New Testament era, baptism was directly associated with conversion. You got converted, you got saved, and you got baptized. Okay? Now there's something else that's interesting. Apparently, as we look at these verses, is that Paul was absolutely confident that the Romans knew what baptism meant. See what he says in verse 3? What? Do you not know that all those who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? So, so, what seems clear is that when somebody got converted, at some point, either before their conversion, during their conversion, or immediately after their conversion, before they were baptized, they were instructed that baptism had a certain meaning to it. Actually, several meanings to it. One of them, obviously, is the cleansing of sins. It represents or pictures for us the cleansing of our sins. 
But that's not the aspect that Paul's developing here. The aspect that Paul's developing here and that he believed that all these Roman believers who had been baptized, presumably within very short order after they were saved, knew when they were baptized is that baptism represented that they had died to sin. Now, we, we have something kind of like baptism today that's not baptism in a lot of evangelical churches. And I have my criticisms of it on one level, but on the other level, I think it's a positive thing. Uh, and that's what we call walking the aisle, right? We have, the, we have the invitation at the close of a service, you know, and then we invite people to come forward, Okay. Well, that's actually a relatively new phenomenon in the history of the church. We've only done it for about the last 150 or 200 years or so. It's not, we've not always done things that way. But we do it a lot nowadays. And some of you, when you got saved, associate the time you got saved with the time you walked the aisle. Right? Some of you do, presumably. Okay? Not all of you. I don't. Because uh, I never walked the aisle, you know, when I got saved. Uh, I got saved at home on my knees by my mother, okay? <laughs> Not by my mother, but with my mother. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, but for, for many people in, in today's church, there was a conversion experience they had, and very closely associated with that conversion experience was that act of walking down the aisle, making public their confession, and going up and talking to somebody who, you know, led them in the steps of faith uh, to salvation. Now, as I pointed out before, if we're trusting in walking the aisle to have saved us, then obviously uh, that's work salvation, and that would be a mistake. But when we talk with somebody who has had that kind of an experience about when they were saved. And you say, well, you remember when you were saved? In their mind, they just automatically think about that time that they squeezed through the pew in front of their friends, you know, and stepped out in the aisle and walked down the aisle. And they associate that with when they were saved. They don't credit that for having saved them, but it's inextricably associated with that point in time when they were saved. Why? Because it's something they did in immediate proximity to the point in time in which they believed. Right? That's how baptism worked for believers in the New Testament era. Because it was so closely associated in time proximity to their conversion. When you talk about, well, you know, just like you would say to somebody, you remember when you walked the aisle? Well, you're not saying you were saved when you walked the aisle, but, but you're saying that's the time when you threw in your lot with Christ. And they understand that. So when Paul is writing to these Romans and he says, remember when you were baptized? It brings up in their mind their conversion experience when they came to Christ. So, the idea of water baptism here just simply signifies their conversion to Christ. Now, Paul never teaches baptismal regeneration. He never teaches that baptism is somehow saves us. He brings it up here 
to illustrate the fact that we are dead to sin, but he never uses it again anymore any, uh, in the entire rest of the chapter as he talks about this whole idea of dying to sin. Baptism never comes up again. Paul has not used the idea of baptism anywhere in the first five chapters of Romans as he talks about how we're justified by faith, uh, by grace through faith in Christ. Baptism has never been raised as a necessary element in that process. Paul doesn't teach baptismal regeneration and he's not teaching it here. But that being said, I don't think we should shy away from the fact that he is, in fact, talking here about water baptism. And he's talking about water baptism because for these believers in Rome, it's immediately associated with that point in time when they were saved and with what they understood it meant. That water baptism represented something that had happened to them when they were saved. It represented that they had been buried with Christ through baptism into His death and had been raised again to walk in newness of life. Verse 4. Right? So, what Paul is arguing here is this whole idea that somebody might suggest that because we believe in grace, we just think that we can just go on sinning any way we want, is completely illogical to the true believer. Because the true believer knows that they have died to the power of sin in their life. They know they have died with Christ to the power of sin. And not only have they died died to the power of sin by being somehow associated with Christ in His death. But I want you to notice what verse 4 says. Verse 4 says, Therefore, having been buried with Him through baptism into His death, so that As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I want you to notice two things that he says there. One he says, so that. And the other he says, as. Just very quickly here, so we don't forget this. So that. As. Uh, so I was, you and I, uh, you and I were buried with Christ through baptism into His death for a reason. So that, what is the reason? Why were we baptized into Christ's death? Okay, in order to walk in the newness of life. That's the reason. So it's not that my dying to Christ or dying with Christ to sin was an end in itself, but my dying with Christ to sin was for the purpose 
that I might walk in newness of life. But this death and resurrection has an as to it. What does the as refer to? As Christ was raised. How? How was He raised? By the glory of the Father. Christ was raised from the dead by the splendor and glory of God. Why was Christ raised from the dead? A lot of this will come out in chapter later in chapter six and in chapter seven. But why was Christ raised from the dead? Why didn't Why didn't the Father just leave him in the grave? So he might live to God. Christ was raised from the dead so that he could spend forever with the Father. And so God, in His splendor and in His glory, employed His splendor and His glory in raising His Son from the dead so that the Son could live with Him forever. Right? And that is the same way that you have died to sin and been raised to walk in a newness of life. Now, we emphasize that second aspect a lot of times when we baptize people, right? And we you know, say, okay, now you've been raised to walk in a newness of life. And that's good. And in fact, that's Paul's point here. Paul's point is, if you've been raised to walk in a newness of life, and that's happened by the glory of the Father, the glory of the Father, when you were saved, the glory of the Father was at work in you to raise you to walk in a newness of life. So now, the power of sin has been shattered in your life. The chains of sin which have bound you and held you and forced you to do their will have been shattered and you, by God's glory and by God's splendor, have been raised and empowered to live a new life. How could you possibly say, let us continue in sin that grace may increase? It's an absurdity, folks. It's just an absolute absurdity. And yet, how oftentimes do we as believers in our struggle with sin on a daily basis, just kind of throw up our hands and act like sin is our master. How many times do we just go too much of a struggle? It's just temptation's too strong. It's too powerful. What did God mean when He said there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man? But God is faithful, who will with the temptation also give you a way of escape. You know, oftentimes I think about that verse, and so I start looking of a way to escape, right? I try and look at some gimmick, some technique to keep from sin. But here's the way of escape, folks. The glory of the Father at work in my life and in your life. That's the way of escape He's provided. 
I have died to sin. I have been... I have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. I have been raised to walk in newness of life. And I no longer have any obligation to sin. Now, what's interesting is we've only looked at the first four verses of Romans 6 and he's going to beat this drum to death. And I'm going to beat it to death because invariably people who study Romans get out of Romans 6 and immediately forget it and get into Romans 7 and spin a, put a spin on Romans 7 that contradicts everything Romans 6 said. And they put themselves back under bondage to sin because of the way they interpret Romans 7. And I'm not going to let us do that. So we're going to work on Romans 6. And we're going to try to get to the point where at least we believe it intellectually and maybe by God's grace we'll start to incorporate it into our lives. Okay? Thank <clears throat>